My parsonage was a little shack that held a tabloid table, a chair, a stovelet that scorched the coverlet of the bedlet, a wardrobe consisting of a few nails in the door. There was a small window and very good ventilation. Often the first of the daily dozen was to shake the snow from my blanket. If you had no washpan, you went to the creek, where you had running water. If you could not afford a tin cup, you hollowed out a gourd and had a graceful and beautiful drinking vessel. A skeletonian brought his scant crop in a rickety gig and said with all his heart and soul, Now I'll buy some alcohol. An Ozarkian felled a big tree with long labor, hewed out of it a railroad tie, used a team and wagon to haul it to town a long way, and got 25 cents. It's pretty hard if you have to make a living that way. I don't have to. I can starve. In some cases, the whole family slept in one bed, and the visiting pastor shared the hospitality. Welcome, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills, here today with the Reverend Adam Kuntz to continue our discussion of the forgotten era of the Missouri Synod. How's it going, Adam? Hey, pretty good. How are you? I'm doing well. How is the weather in Fort Wayne? It's very mild, very sunny, strangely enough. You know, I'm just shocked by both those things, so it's it's very nice. Right. Mild. You get your taste of mild again. <laughs> Same thing here in central Illinois. I think geographically we're fairly even as far right. as those terms go. So, yeah, enjoying a little bit of spring in the early days of winter, I suppose you could say. Yeah. And we're recording this, uh, getting ready for Christmas, although I think by the time this episode drops, Christmas will pass. So a Merry Christmas to whoever is listening. We'll probably still be in the 12 days of Christmas somewhere. Uh, we don't have Zell in here today to riff on, so I don't really know how to weather post much more than that. <laughs> yeah, well, he, he I, I don't really know why he turned us loose in this way. The listeners should be familiar with the idea that Zelwyn is the adult on the podcast and keeps everybody in line and uh, right. keeps us from saying things that would cause uh, any kind of federal investigation. So here we <laughs> are. Alone. True. Yeah. And now, boy, we are off the reservation, so to speak. So we'll see how it goes. Um, <laughs> Z- Zelwyn is the invisible hand that guides a word fitly. Right, right. So anyway, we are now continuing this discussion of the Forgotten Era, and it's actually been since March that we last took up the topic. I nearly, I nearly forgot. Yeah, right. nearly, right. nearly re-forgotten era, right? <laughs> Adam, why don't you bring us a little bit up to speed here about what we mean by this Forgotten Era? Yeah, we mean basically the first roughly 75 years of the Missouri Synod, but especially the period between about the death of Walther in the 1880s and, let's say, the beginning of the Second World War. A lot of people are familiar with the very beginnings of the Missouri Synod, at least a part of that, as we'll discuss. And many people are familiar with the troubles in the Missouri Synod from about the 1940s onward. But its period of greatest growth, period of greatest expansion and strength, really, and, and certainly confidence, is fairly unknown to most people. It's locked up in doctoral dissertations and the like. And so we want to talk about it, and we did talk about it. So if you're listening, it's, it is Christmas break. You probably have time. You can go back and listen to the episode from March about the Forgotten Era before going on to today, where we're going to talk a little bit more about some things we didn't get to mention last time. Right, and that should be episode 51. We'll link to it in the show description. So where should we pick up then? You know, basically, we're talking about an era that is not discussed a lot for whatever reason. And Missouri Synod history today, unfortunately, tends to be either focused on the Saxon immigration, certain events in the life of Walther, mm-hmm. then World War II and post-World War II. Right. Because I think World War II, that era probably got a little bit more press maybe 40 years ago or yeah. so. Right. Because there is a big period of growth, but that's that growth at that time isn't unique to the Missouri Synod. Not at all. Not at all. 
Every everyone was growing like gangbusters in the 1950s. Yeah, um, absolutely. So pretty much anything you can say about the Missouri Synod at that time, you could say about nearly any other denomination. Right. You know, more or less. Right. So now we're going to refocus then back on this forgotten era. And why is it so important to focus on it? Or to not forget it, we'll say. Partly because it dispels a lot of myths that we tell ourselves about ourselves. And I think that a group's self-understanding is huge, not only for its past, but also for its present and especially for its future. One of the reasons that this era is forgotten is because it, it occurred within the Missouri Synod almost entirely, not entirely, but almost entirely in German. And so after the shift into English culturally and organizationally in the 20s, 30s, 40s, we don't really have access truly to the things that these men did or wrote about one another. We have access to the very earliest days of Synod because of a book from, I want to say the 1950s, called Zion on the Mississippi about the founding of the Perry County Saxon colony. But a lot of the success that we had, not the distress and failures of the Saxons, the success is all locked up in German, pretty much. And so it has largely just been forgotten how we were and what we were and how we achieved so much. Yeah, and because it seems so tied to a period that is, for many, at least for now, inaccessible, Right. there's not a big drive to translate this or maybe put this into a a coherent history. Right. Um, you know, that's a book that's perhaps yet to be written. It's going to take a lot of groundwork. So that's why Word Fitly Spoken's here anyway. Wouldn't you rather just hear two dudes talk about it in English? <laughs> I know I would. So Yeah, what well, and and I think I think it's it, it's it's vastly different from something about which you know a lot, which is Mormon history where sure. that is that is almost entirely in English and so you have you know just just amateur everyday people living in you know the mountain west who can read detailed accounts of what it was actually like to be part of the group that they're still part of that is that is almost entirely lost to us because we cannot almost any of us read those accounts that they've left yeah and really as american english speakers as far as primary sources for many denominations of, say, the English Reformation, we have nearly every primary source back to the beginning. Right, right. And and so that's a tremendous uh, blessing that we have from an historical perspective. Because the worst thing you bump into when you go back to the 1500s and the English Reformation is some archaic language and maybe some archaic syntax, but that's about it. You know, you, you can understand it. right. Right, exactly. And I, yeah. I think that the other, besides the, the, the language barrier, there's also an, a self-understanding barrier. And this probably has to do with the fact that the Missouri Synod is popularly known as the Missouri Synod, not the Missouri, Ohio, and other states Synod, which is its founding name in German. And it's, its legal name since the 40s is the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. But that is that we talk about our own history, sort of how... After the Civil War, you had textbooks all over the United States talking about the Puritan fathers, you know, our, our fathers who came to, you know, colonial Massachusetts, to, to Plymouth Plantation. You know, that's only true for a particular sector of the United States. We, I'm sure we don't use textbooks that say our Puritan fathers anymore, but, but there was a time when American schoolchildren learned about our Puritan fathers even though it's characteristic of only a part of the group of the American nation. You have a similar issue in Lutheran history, certainly Missouri Synod history, where we talk about the Saxons who came to Perry County at the end of the 1830s as if they really are the Missouri Synod. Yeah, and too, in, in the popular conception that they are German, as if Saxon and German are totally synonymous. Why are they not synonymous? Can you, can you just lay that out? <laughs> Certainly, much like the United States of America, which one might say does have a shared uh, cultural background and language, we are still many different people regionally. Right. So much so that the Yankee in the Northeast is American, but distinguished from the 
guy in, you know, Western West Virginia, for example, or way down in Louisiana. And I'm trying not to use the offensive terms for all of these people, but it's really hard. Um, the same, the same thing can be said of England, right? There's a difference between a Londoner or a Cornishman or, uh, you know, whatever you get the idea. Just for instance, you know, yeah. Hypothetically. Right. uh, Yeah. There are linguistic differences, differences in accent and certainly differences in culture. And you see that throughout what will eventually be unified as Germany. Right. But at the founding of our Synod, that isn't the case. Right. Not, not, not at all. Right. And even to this day, you still have the regional differences, but although they are now politically unified in a way that they were not at the time of the founding of the Synod. Right. Exactly. So they're, they're not politically unified and there are things, if you read the accounts, uh, some of them written by themselves, C- Wilhelm Seeler, for instance, um, who I believe is a Prussian, writes an account of his life. But differences in manners, in culture, certainly in accent, there were a lot of people who were deeply irritated by other people's what they considered lower class accents when speaking standard German. And the significant proportion of colonists in Michigan who settled under Leia's direction, uh, spoke a particular Bavarian dialect that when pastors would come to those different congregations, they would have to learn how to preach in that Bavarian dialect, even if they were themselves from a completely different part of Germany. Yeah, it's similar It's similar to when um, it's presidential election season and everybody that's a candidate or who is a candidate is speaking in that kind of generic Midwest accent. Right. Until they have a rally in, in Alabama and all of a sudden they're Uncle Remus. <laughs> you know, it's uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. You, you have to affect the accent where you're at. Right. Right. You got to fake it a little bit. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Hillary Clinton used to have a Southern accent, uh, even though she's from Illinois. The daughter of a poor drapery maker. Come on, man. Right. Yeah. Something like that. And I don't think she does anymore. But yeah, no, that's in the case of the founders of Synod. One of the big cultural differences is between the Saxons and everybody else, partly because the Saxon group is better educated than a lot of the men that pastored congregations in Ohio, Indiana, and so forth, which is the other sort of realm of strength of the earliest Missouri Synod. Big cultural differences, especially between university graduates and non-university graduates. So I think one of the things to understand about the Forgotten Era is that although it, it exists almost entirely in German and benefits from massive German immigration, especially after the American Civil War, that is not a unified group. The unity that is created through the hard work of guys who are riding around on the prairie or gathering people off the boats in New York or organizing churches in neighborhoods in Chicago or San Francisco or anywhere that there were Germans they're not, they, it's not like there was a group that they just went and said, hello, are you exactly the way I am? Okay, good. You can come to my church. That's not right. how it's, it worked. Because it it's, it's really, and that's a very important point. What unites them is the German language, even though there are differences there. That's really what they have most in common is at right. least a familiar language, right. which again is similar today. If someone, if some man is called from Northern Minnesota to plant churches in Middle Tennessee, the language is technically the same. <laughs> yes, technically. Right? Yes, right. right. <laughs> but but the culture is markedly different, and there is a great hurdle to overcome. Right. One that we often don't take into account when men, especially raised in really these cradle Lutheran environments, when they go to a to a place like say a Tennessee, right, or an Arkansas, or wherever. It's almost a different country. Mm -hmm. It's almost a different planet. And that exact same hurdle that we might face today was both faced and I would argue conquered during the Forgotten Era because the the problem is very similar. Right. Yeah. And I, and I, I, I don't see their mission strategy, which is pretty much limited to German. And we'll talk more about that in the next segment and, and what they did with, you know, English, but it's not really that distinct. It's not really distinct from what St. Paul is doing in ancient Anatolia. Paul does not know, uh, and you can tell from Acts, he does not know 
any of the native languages of Anatolia apart from Greek. And there are many of them. They're pretty much all entirely gone. But, you know, there's a lot of weird stuff to be said about what has occurred in the past that people have forgotten. There was something that sounded almost exactly like Welsh being spoken in the middle of what is now Turkey, you know, by the by the Celts who had invaded. Yeah. and, And I've heard that before. And I'm always a little skeptical of it, but for the purposes of this argument, I'm going to let it stand. <laughs> no, but it is true. I mean, yeah, and, and that's yeah. the way, lang- you know, language is a strange beast. And, and yet a common language is important right. um, to make anything happen. Right. Uh, there's kind of a positive lesson from the Tower of Babel there, I suppose, <laughs> that when our language is so totally different, it confounds us. And it doesn't just confuse us, but it also separates us as a people. And the importance for a shared common language in worship and in conversation is essential to not just the unity of, co- of communities, but the unity of the church yeah. on earth, the church militant, we'll say. Yeah. And maybe I'm just thinking of this in terms of someone who has planted churches or who has worked in church missions where English is not the dominant language. Yeah. You know, but, but like say Spanish though was the, was the dominant language for a large portion of the population where I've served. And Mm -hmm. yet, where was the wedge, right? What was the difficult thing? It wasn't getting Mexicans and Salvadoranos and and, and others together. Mm -hmm. It was getting English-speaking Americans, whether Hispanic or not, and exclusive Spanish speakers together simply for that reason. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, And and so language is is of the utmost importance. It's, I think, yeah, no, that's fine. I think there's also, there's, there's a realism about it, which is that you cannot do absolutely everything. It's, it's not possible for Paul, for instance, to learn, you know, every, every extant rural Anatolian language that's employed. So he uses Greek that reaches the greatest number. It happens to concentrate overwhelmingly in the cities of Asia Minor from those cities, eventually the church does indigenize in rural areas. It's able to translate the faith out of Greek into other local languages, but that's it, it's simply targeting, understanding that you cannot achieve absolutely everything. And I don't see the early Missouri Synod really doing anything different. No, yeah, they're, they're using um, what was the most expedient, and I mean that in a good way, not just pure right. pragmatism, but this is how it's actually going to work. I suppose there's something to be said for the British Empire making all official business in the territories into English and making English <laughs> the official language because it does make it easier for us to communicate with large parts of the world today for that reason. Right, right, right. And, and in another period of time, it would have been French. And in biblical times, it would have been certainly Greek. So, yeah, that's that's just kind of the way the world works, isn't it? Right. And so, yeah, so the as we're coming up toward the break here, we want to be mindful that that this is the context in which the Missouri Synod is founded. But it's not quite so simple as saying, well, they were all Germans, so they stuck with Germans. It's simply saying that the German language, despite its its regional differences, unites them, and that's the context they work in. But within that time, there is a lot of hurdle. there There are many hurdles that have to be overcome. I realize I've said context a lot, and that might make some listeners nervous because of the term contextualization in in mission, and that is not what we're advocating for here. This idea that we change everything about the church to accommodate some niche surrounding. By context, I simply mean literally the place where they are. Right. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's it's sad. You know, we're talking about language a lot and how loaded just any term has become today. Right. You can't. We have to, even on the podcast, we have to stop and start a lot to explain what we mean by by these words and that we don't mean uh, much offense, which is probably something that, say, an Alsatian bumped into when talking to, a, I don't know, a Bavarian or right. whatever. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so, you know, there we are. Any Any final words or thoughts before we head to the break? Yeah, just to remember that what they're doing is being extremely practical about the task that lies before them. They believe themselves and then they, I believe they, they truly were theologically unique 
within the American religious landscape. So they have a, a continent-wide task ahead of them. And they begin with a group that is closest to home linguistically. From there, they begin to preach the gospel and they expand enormously. We'll talk about that in the next segment. Stay tuned, folks. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. But he said, Yea, rather blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Hang tight. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. Welcome back, everyone. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Adam Kuntz talking about the forgotten era of the Missouri Senate. Okay, so we've set that up. We've talked a lot about the context in which the Missouri Senate finds herself at this time. So then what does the context look like apart from just different regional dialects? Right. It's it's going to be a little bit different from English-speaking America, because the political struggles and ideological challenges within the German-speaking lands in Europe and then German-speaking America, if you want to use that term, are a little bit different and stranger. So the listeners can find online a translation of Walther's writings against socialism and communism. And this is not just a political screed. This isn't like Walther, the talk radio host or something. This is Walther writing theologically against those political philosophies because of his understanding of them as godless. A reminiscence of this will come up in English in the 20th century in Walter A. Meyer, the first's writings and, and, and speeches against communism. And we should say that Walther writing against the communists, similar to Meyer, is not to say that it's an empty threat or that he's tilting at windmills here. Right, right, right. Walther's dealing with a group known as the 48ers who emigrated to America after various failed democratic, let's say, and perhaps socialistic revolutions in various places in Europe and various parts of the German lands specifically. They come to America and compose a large segment and generally the leading segment of the German population in most of the cities that have large German populations in the 1840s and 1850s. So Chicago, St. Louis, Milwaukee. Right. And that's not to be confused with the 49ers, um, right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so if right. you go to if you go to research this, you know, be you know, beware. This isn't what we're we're talking about here. And who what is the makeup of your typical urban communist in <laughs> the early 1800s? Right. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, the 48ers are are vastly disproportionately well educated. They are mm-hmm. not Unlike Antifa generally today, today's urban communists, they're generally not violent in the United States, but they do come for the sake of the free speech that is available in the United States. They don't they don't have to conform to any church. And partly because of their education, they become leading figures in the German language media. So the major competitor to Walther's paper in the St. Louis area, for instance, is a socialist paper that is advocating against all religion and a variety of other things that Walther finds heinous. This is this is really different, I think. I think it's vastly different from anything that your average English-speaking, you know, 
Presbyterian or Congregationalist has to deal with ideologically. Right. Well, correct. And I mean, but there is a capitalist streak that that is inherent to that English reformed, especially the strain that comes to America. The 48ers is a really interesting topic because it ends up being tied to the roots of the Republican Party. It's It's related to the Civil War in a lot of ways. And part of it though is is the have the perception of your typical german changes throughout history too right 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 and so yeah i wish we had more time to just focus on that you know commie 19th century commies in the missouri senate that would be kind of a fun episode <laughs> well i mean it 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 really puts a different spin on how you understand what the average missouri senate pastor is dealing with when he's talking to people i think because we have stereotypes of germans a lot of this is based on Hollywood, honestly. It doesn't have to do with people's knowledge of German culture as mm-hmm. authoritarian, obedient, or maybe people can remember their own ancestors and what they know of them is that they were farmers. But that really doesn't do justice right. to, you know, if you're the first Missouri Synod chaplain in the Civil War, who I believe serves in an Illinois regiment, it's not as if every person he was preaching to was deeply religious or something. You know, that's that, I mean, it's it's important to understand that Germany is, so to speak, secularizing faster in the 19th century than anything in the English speaking world. Well, and it's interesting to consider, I mean, how these socialist movements are always atheistic. Right. And then even on up as you're creeping towards the 20th century and into the 20th century, you have wobblies going around right. farms in the upper Midwest trying to recruit farmers. Right. Right, and and, 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 it, and it works to a certain extent, right? It does. It they they have yeah. some success because religion is not assumed, and this is something we've pointed out in many episodes when we talked about missions in the Missouri Synod and early okay. what we've called would now call domestic missions, right? Quote unquote. Right. right. But it was not like the way people put it, where the German pastor would show up in town. Hey, are there any German immigrants? Point me to them. He goes to where this mysterious group of a group of Germans are all just hanging out and says, Hey, church tonight, seven <laughs> o'clock. Right. Right. And everybody showed up. If you read the actual uh, evidence, it is contending with these people. It is dealing with obstinacy. There's a lot of, you know, bat- there's a lot of housework that goes on right. home to home, door to door. And it, it, you begin to get a very different picture of what it looked like. Then I think we are too quick to say how easy it was. Right, right. And I, I, st- things that we don't really think about, you have to think about, well, what, what were they trying to achieve ideologically? So to, to, give, you, to give you a concrete example, you know, pretty much everybody knows that the Missouri Synod, for the vast majority of its history, was extremely focused on parochial schooling. We even would take people to court, in one famous case, <laughs> right, uh, right. for removing their children from the parochial school. So, so why were we doing this? It is not because all of these people who did speak German and used it on a daily basis, it is not because they were all so innately Lutheran and they just all wanted to go to Lutheran schools and pay extra money to support Lutheran schools and put up a school before they put up a church. It's not because they all just innately wanted to do this. And the Missouri Synod was just lucky enough to find these people all across the country because one of the big things you notice about the, the this forgotten era is that the Missouri Synod starts in the Midwest, but unlike the Wisconsin Synod or the Norwegian Synod or any of the synods that it's actually in communion with at any time, the Missouri Synod does not stay in the Midwest. It goes all over the country very rapidly. What they do is they get the kids into school. And when they're in school, usually in a mission start with the pastor all day, that ends up producing loyal Lutherans. <laughs> and then the kid grows up and gets married in the Missouri Synod Church, and he sends his kid to school. That creates a tradition that in hindsight to us looks, quote, monolithic. But to the people who started these things, it was by no means monolithic. And the school was, generally speaking, the instrument of indoctrination in the best sense. Right, which you want to do. Right. We are pro-indoctrination here. We it's are. just what are, yes. you, what, are, what are you indoctrinating your children to or your <laughs> right. converts to? If you're an evangelist even seeks to more or less indoctrinate someone. I mean, catechesis and indoctrination are almost synonyms. 
Well, they, and, I mean, they, they really are. They really, really are. I mean, it's, we need catechesis to, yeah. just sounds nicer to us today. Exactly. And we're not, you know, hooking, um, you know, strapping people to chairs and using the Ludovico technique or anything like that. We are sim- <laughs> <laughs> we're just, it's, it's simply drilling and, and memorization and, and, and stressing the importance of these things and not giving people other options. Right. The modern humanities, what, what passes for humanities today basically says you have to experience everything to learn it. Right. And, and that's a very modern under, way to approach the humanities. Well, we were a little bit smarter in the old days, and we said, no, other philosophies are dangerous, and we're going to, sh- to keep you away from them yeah. by affirming what you actually believe. Right. And it's a lot right. of work. Right. And again, it's not it's not like every kid who showed up had parents who just really wanted their kids to learn the catechism or exactly. something like that. Exactly. Yeah, I think I think what happens is that we give our fathers too little credit for how much they worked, but we give their parishioners way too much credit for how Lutheran they somehow innately were. Nobody is innately Lutheran. It has to be taught, and it was. And I I think that what's interesting about this is that the focus is so sincerely intense on German culture that a lot of the institutions of synod, including the one at which I teach, were founded with the idea of preserving and promoting German culture, I think, quote, forever in the case of Concordia Theological Seminary. I don't know how well that's working at this at this juncture, but we even did this with groups that were adjacent, say, to German culture. So Yiddish, which is really the Jewish dialect of German. It's kind of the insider language for German, German area Jews. Sure. Yiddish was a major mission language for us in the New York area. And there is a, there is a man now, I think entirely forgotten, but who was fluent both in German and in Yiddish. He was a converted Jew named Nathaniel Fleischmann. And he had a mission on the lower East side of Manhattan, which at the time was almost entirely a an Ashkenazi Jewish neighborhood, somewhat similar to Williams parts of Williamsburg and Brooklyn today. He operated completely in Yiddish, and there 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 are two stories that I know about him from different biographies and autobiographies from this era. None of them by Fleischmann himself. I haven't found anything by him, but Fleischmann, you know, had been raised Jewish, which at the time always had a religious component. He was not, quote, emancipated in that way or assimilated. And right. so he had been he had been taught to abhor pork just on a visceral level. But what's interesting is when he had when he was not among Jews, he wouldn't eat pork because it physically disgusted him. But when he was among Jews, he would always eat pork to demonstrate his freedom in the gospel from Jewish law. And he he related that to a man that we'll talk about a little bit later, William Dahlman. The other thing to know about him is that he was funded by other Missouri Synod churches to pursue this mission on the Lower East Side, but he often suffered physical attacks from other people in the neighborhood and and sometimes preached under police protection because of the, the physical danger of proclaiming the Messiah to his, to his kinsmen according to the flesh, as it were. And and this man, this man is forgotten. I never heard anybody talk about him or the fact that the Missouri Synod had a Yiddish language mission similar to, to things that were going on, you know, in Berlin among Lutherans at the same time. No, and it's that's actually markedly different from what you see in our handful of Jewish outreaches today, wherein they seek to sort of LARP, you know, in a Jewish, in a Messianic Jewish way. Um, in order to reach them, and his approach is again similar language or same right. language in the case of Yiddish, right. but an actual bold proclamation of the gospel away from the works of the law, particularly the Jewish, the, law. Right. The Jewish law, yeah, ceremonial right. law, especially in this case. Right, and yeah, um, that's a very different attitude. I don't know if you could even publish that book today and get away with it. Uh, right. <laughs> I mean, I mean, but I think what's remarkable is because he could operate in German with the rest of the Missouri Synod, and this is this is similar to some other. I mean, everyone that went to the Springfield Seminary, which is which which had been and now once again is the Fort Wayne Seminary. Everyone of all linguistic groups that went to that seminary was taught German. 
in order to be able to operate sort of administratively within the Missouri Synod. Because he could do that, we pursued this mission that I am not aware we have at all, even though the Jewish population in the five boroughs is certainly bigger than it was then. I, I think that, that that gets us into this issue of of English, which is obviously, you know, <laughs> at least uh, is is still currently the major language of the United States and always has been. Right. I don't think that's controversial on this podcast. Right. No, no, not here. But the question is, what, 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 what did they do about this? And some of this history is also lost. It is not the case, in fact, that the Missouri Synod just ignored the vast majority of the American population that, that spoke English. But it is the case that they were focused on being and reaching Germans. So in 1872, CFW Walther went to a meeting And here there are a lot of word fitly things coming together just at this meeting in Gravelton, Missouri, where there is still a church with people who had come west from eastern Tennessee and western North Carolina and settled that area, sort of the foothills of the Ozarks. And it was in that place that these descendants of the Tennessee Synod were encouraged by Walther after realizing that they totally agreed with him theologically to form their own group that could operate, not just pursue missions in, but operate as a group in English. And that that came to be called the English Evangelical Lutheran Conference of Missouri, and then it was the English Evangelical Lutheran Synod, and then in 1911 when it joined the Missouri Synod, it, it was the English District. But that group is really descended from the Tennessee Synod, not from the Missouri Synod per se, and Walther's, Walther's you know, position was, look, like, we want to help you, we just can't, and you can't really work with us because you're not committed to knowing German. So, you know, you do your thing in English, and we will send you graduates. Right, and it's almost as if Walther recognizes the shortcomings that they have with regard to this. Right. That the, that the Missouri Synod has, rather. Right. That- you know, they're, at this point in time, they are not well equipped to deal with as many English speakers that exist at the time. Right, right. <laughs> they are simply ordered around the German language, and that's there's nothing inherently wrong with that. Right. And what is good is he's able to say, we can't really do all this, but we, right. but we still want you to keep working. Right. So he, he doesn't draw a line and say you must assimilate into this German Borg of ours, but you have to, <laughs> you right. know, we're, there's still a wall of separation between us, but there's yeah. still, a, there's, a, there's a door in the wall, but right. there's still a wall. And that wall is the language and the culture you could say too. Right. Right. Now it's that's, a, that'd be an interesting one is, and it would be almost impossible to really know how different the culture, not just the language, but the culture of the Tennessee Synod come English Synod is yeah. from your, your typical Waltherian Missouri Synod congregation, Missouri Synod planet. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a little bit we can say about that. And I think this is an interesting aspect of the Missouri Synod's capacity to stretch in order to find theological agreement, because what Walther brings to Gravelton in August 1872 is a set of distinctives of the Evangelical Lutheran Church, which sets it apart from all other churches. And, and this is really attuned to, you know, are these English speakers aware of the difference between Lutherans and Methodists or Lutherans and Presbyterians? And so he goes mm-hmm. through this, and Walther, from what I understand, his passive English capacity, his capacity to read or understand conversation is really very good, his capacity to speak publicly or to preach is not very good. So most of this is going to be translated on the fly by a man named Moser. That's kind of an obscure Tennessee Synod name and another pastor who is a Hankel. And that's not at all obscure to our listeners. And as this is translated, they say, yes, we agree with all this. This is great. But some of the differences are these is that the intro to this week's episode is from William Dahlman's work in the Ozarks among these sorts of congregations they really are culturally American Southerners. They're raising small plots of tobacco. They live in very isolated settlements and are very happy doing it. They're preaching 
is more extensive and their liturgy is simpler than the Germans. But none of that is sort of an issue for Walther. The doctrinal agreements that, that's reached is, is really it. But culturally, yeah, they're very different from any kind of Germans. That's eventually going to change because the English synod and then district is going to become much more urban, which we'll talk about in the next segment. But yeah, culturally, they're, they're fairly alien to German immigrants because they are colonial descended. You know, they, I, they have German last names, most of them, but they're really American Southerners and they're small farmers in isolated settlements. Very good. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in Him. The mission of Word Fitly Spoken is to put the Word of God at the center of all of life. To find out more, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org. Welcome back, everyone. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Adam Kuntz talking about the forgotten era of the Missouri Synod. Well, it's been fun talking about language and Germans and how the English come into our Synod. Well, now let's take a look at some practical examples, or some, excuse me, some specific examples of, a, of men who have, who, who really exemplify, rather, this era of high energy and willingness to do the job. Let's talk about William Dahlman. Yeah, William Dahlman is a fascinating guy. He's actually born in Germany, and his family immigrates to Chicago when he's quite young. So he does not grow up with a recognizable German accent of any kind. That's crucial because uh, although he speaks German at home, and in church and attends a parochial school, despite the fact that his family was not particularly devout themselves in Germany. Uh, they become more devout as a way of bonding with other Germans in Chicago. All of his world is really in German, except when he goes to the public library, and it's there that he reads voraciously. This creates in him a style that if the readers can find his autobiography real brief it's from 1945 called My Life, he wrote a bunch of other books too, but that's the autobiography. He develops this really beautiful, almost aphoristic style in English that would really be extremely well-suited to Twitter at this point. Dolman, I think, <laughs> was, was a man ahead of his time in many ways. Well, he would probably be banned from Twitter. He probably would. Well, yeah, yeah he's, he's not getting the blue check mark, at least. He, he, he wouldn't be a, be a blue checker, and he... Uh, really doesn't like Masons. So he would probably get into some conspiracy corners of Twitter and and would get banned from there. But let's be uh, honest, he'd be listening to this podcast. He would be listening to this podcast because he was born at a better time. And, <laughs> and so he goes from parochial school, he goes to the junior college in Fort Wayne. And from there, he goes to the St. Louis Seminary. What's interesting is this is this is still during Walther's life. He's got a, he's got a, his favorite story about Walther, whom he really kind of idolized as a man, is that he would go to Sunday dinner at a prominent layman's house and Walther would come over. And he said Walther was such a great guy. He would always, he would sit next to Dahlman and make sure that Dahlman's wine glass was always full. That was the kind of guy that Walther was. Of course, Walther didn't bring the wine, you know. Walther did not bring the wine. He was enjoying the hospitality, and he wanted young Dahlman to enjoy his life, you know, so he made sure the glass was full. Very Japanese of Walther. There you go. Uh, but Dahlman, Dahlman is unique in his English ability. So 
what's happening in St. Louis by sort of the 1880s is that you now have a generation, and this is where the English language work in the Missouri Synod is going to explode and explodes in Dahlman's own life, is that you have people being born in America. And so even though they are schooled in German and go to church in German and memorize the Bible in German, they don't really think or live in German unless they're with their family or in church. And so these are people who are now more comfortable in English. So beginning in this time, even in the very large German community of a place like St. Louis, not to speak of other parts of the country, you now have people who want to hear sermons in English. And Dahlman is busy constantly throughout his seminary career preaching at different churches in English. This translates into something, and this is kind of, I mean, you know, I, I don't I don't want to speak as if everyone made all the right decisions and it was all amazing, because the Missouri Synod has this really clunky thing where the English Synod exists and has congregations that are just that do everything in English. But then we also have a missions board run out of St. Louis for the sake of English language missions. So there's always parallel stuff going on inside the officially German Missouri Synod. That missions board is going to detail a certain number of graduates every so often to go into and work in the English Synod. This parallel institution, which is English only, Dolman is sent there and he's sent into the Ozarks, into these kind of uh, southern settler population groups straight out of seminary. But he doesn't stay there. And th this is what's interesting about his life is that it tracks the development of Missouri Synod English language work out of this Tennessee Synod descended group into really the whole country. Because from southern Missouri, he goes to Baltimore. And from Baltimore, he goes to New York City by which time he's not only the editor of the Lutheran Witness, which at the time is just the English Synod paper, it will become the Missouri Synod's English language paper and is now the only Missouri Synod paper. But he also helps to produce the Common Service, which the Eastern Lutherans largely put together in the late 1880s. But he's in on those discussions in Pennsylvania in the 1880s. He's kind of in on everything that we really use in English. What I find very interesting about these men, certainly like him in these days, they are doing a job that today would be considered full-time. Right. But their part-time <laughs> gigs would have full benefits packages today. Right. And yet they, they managed to make it all work and all fit together in a time yeah. where communication was not as easy and travel certainly was not as simple. No, not at all. I mean, he was he was part-time, I suppose you could say. He was editor of his synod's paper. He worked on the common service, which we we now popularly know as, you know, DS3. It's still it's still page 15 here, Goy. Page I'm just 15 saying. there. I'm sorry. Right. I'm sorry. See, he's got that. And then he also produces a Sunday school hymnal. He helps to produce what becomes the Evangelical Lutheran Hymn Book, which is the first English language hymnal. He's doing all of that while pastoring congregations in Baltimore and then New York. And what's interesting is when you read his autobiography, when he is district president, his job isn't, I mean, it, he does have to fix some messes, but his job is primarily to start new churches. And he's doing that everywhere. It's kind of, it's kind of nuts how many places he gets to. And this all is being done by train. Now, I don't want to, I don't want to train post about how it's like really the ultimate form of transportation. But it did get Dahlman to many, many places seemingly quickly. And he's starting congregations up and down the East Coast, but also in especially the urban Midwest, which which are the places that Lutherans are anglicizing most rapidly, where people are saying, look, I, I don't I don't I mean I know I know German language hymns. I know the Bible in German, but I, I kind of live and think in English. And that's really the genesis of a lot of the English language work, not within the English Synod, but within the Missouri Synod generally. Certainly. And, you know, this is really where you start to see the great change happening at this point. And once the ball really gets rolling on that, there's no way to, to, to shift it back. I wonder to what degree we overemphasize the hesitance to change into English. 
And because the evidence is, it's not really anecdotal, but it's, it's also hard to curate. You almost have to go to congregation to congregation and see, was there really a great fight against an English service, for example? Right, right. And you sort of saw that in the history of, say, my congregation, for example. It took them a long time to get that. And even then, you're well into the 1900s, and it's only, say, one day a month that you would get that. Right. In, in other areas, though, you'll find a congregation that almost immediately accepts a proposal to do an English service. Right. Where German was already established. Right. And I think that's so congregation specific, it would be hard to say for sure, really, how broadly was the push to get not not get rid of German, but to transition into English. Yeah. Obviously, there is some pushback, but how great is it? Because that's how it's presented as, as it was this huge, giant uphill battle because people were dragging against it. And I wonder, though, if... It's an uphill battle simply because it's inertia. This is what people do, and it's hard to change what people are accustomed to in right. that way. No, that is exactly right. Inertia is the right word for it because what you see, Dolman will report, is not so much that the seminary professors or the district presidents or any of the authorities at any level were not necessarily hostile, exactly. They didn't say, oh, you're going to destroy everything by preaching in English. They were usually simply understood that they didn't really know how to do this. They had no idea of what to do because there were things that are completely, they are totally forgotten. And I don't know if anyone's ever going to resurrect them, but the Missouri Synod sort of had on sort of the side, it wasn't an official Synod publication, but it was an evening paper that the family was supposed to read aloud on Sunday evening. And Missouri Synod pastors would pass it out at church as kind of wholesome family entertainment. It was called the Abendschule, the evening school. And there was a Missouri Synod teacher that wrote an entire novel about a German-American boy in there. All of this is totally forgotten now. But like what you can see is we were investing so deeply in promoting a kind of holistic life that could be understood as German and American but it was German speaking to transition out of that into, okay, now I have to operate in English. Now I have to understand not just another language, but an entirely other thought world. And, and what you see is that when Dahlman is talking to pe- talking to people, they're not hostile to him. They just say, I, I just, you know, I just can't do that. Or I don't understand how you can do that because there are so, because so much had been invested historically and since the founding of Synod, in creating a German language thought world that made sense and covered the entirety of a person's life, such that whereas in English, it's like, okay, you can preach in English, and I can give you an English Bible, and I can teach you in English, and we can even do parochial school in English, but you're going to get all kinds of other ideas because you, you live in English how do we recreate that world? And I think that one of the things that you see change in the change from German to English, I don't think is so much the loss of theological literature. That's, that's true. But I think it's a loss of a whole cultural world that, that synod in German felt comfortable in and could even inhabit. They're kind of, they're kind of swamped once they move to English because now people think that and, and, and you see this a lot with like well-meaning laymen, you know, they'll, they'll read kind of Baptist books because they want to read Christian stuff. And that's kind of what's available because that's, that, that's the risk that you took by moving into English. It's something we had to do, but it, it's definitely a shift. Yeah. And the church, you know, we, we're allowed to say, and it's true that the church, even in English remains up until the 20th century, well into the 20th century, an important cultural hub for Christians of all denominations. But during this context of the German language in the 19th century among the Lutherans, the church is part of that shared culture, and it is tied to the language. And it's a language that's almost unique to Lutherans in the United States. Lutherans and Catholics are a about all you have in the United States at the time that speak German. Right. Yes, you have you have Jews, and yes, you have some Anabaptists, although they're going to trickle in a little bit later. 
probably more in, in greater numbers. But for all intents and purposes, you have Lutherans and Catholics that are speaking German. And particularly Lutheranism is identified with German because you have plenty of Irish Catholics and you have plenty of Italian Catholics, right? Mm -hmm. So that Catholicism can be associated with two or three more different ethnic groups. But Lutheranism is almost exclusively associated with Germans. Apologies to the Scandinavian listeners out there. But that, but that is how, I mean, even to this day, Lutheranism is in some circles seen as an ethnic religion. Like, right. like a, a Greek Orthodox or a Russian, you know, they can, they can be churches that are seen only in, in their ethnic identity, not necessarily in what they're teaching right. for right or wrong. But by the time you transition into English, what do you have? Well, that's about all you have in common because the Baptist across the street is speaking English or the Presbyterian or whatever. And maybe we made some efforts to retain what you would call this culture because we did have things later on like the Walther League or Timothy Societies, at least groups that tried to maintain a culture, although those are particularly churchly, but they, they're particularly churchly in in the evening paper or right. the evening school. The right. evening school. Right. So, right. so it's just a case of English being so much broader as far as who you could communicate with that kills kills that emphasis. Right. And, and we don't have that today at all. I mean, we don't have this idea of a devotional life and a life centered around the church. And that's a, a question of can we blame only the transition to English? Certainly not. No. But it was certainly easier to be insular when you couldn't communicate as well with the broader community. Right. And that's kind of important. I don't think that we should fault them for that. No, no, and I, I yeah. think uh, I, I think that what what is what is sort of brilliant about the the whole life, if I can point a, a stupid ready-made word, the whole life mission strategy that Missouri employed was that it gave people a sense of coherence in massive transition within their own lives, and also massive generational change, where you know you're going to raise. You're going to raise kids who can speak a language you don't really understand, and your grandkids might not be able to communicate with you linguistically. And Missouri attempted to deal with that. They largely succeeded. I mean, Synod was still expanding even into the advent of English. And you're right that things like Walther League were not, not merely designed to teach people more information. This is, I think, part of the intelligence of the men who built the thing, not only in German, but also like Dahlman in English, is that they understood that people are have lots of facets to them and that maintaining their allegiance to the church, especially in a land where they don't have to go anywhere and they could, especially once they learn English, they could go anywhere they want, requires a lot more effort than the church had to exert in a state church situation. Right. I think the men of the forgotten era understood something that we often don't. Their theology is the same as ours. Okay, so let's get that out of the way. But they understood right. that it wasn't merely the pronunciation of dogma right. that made and kept Christians. No. Okay, that it is a whole life of faith and a faith that is born out. The dogma should extend to the life of the person so that it's lived out. But we've even in confessional circles, we can run into this, this attitude of if the person confesses the doctrine correctly, right. that is, he says, I believe it, and uses the proper language and formulation, that he's a good guy and we're going to, and he's going to be just fine. Right. And part of that, though, is this, is this what we're talking about, where we've lost this idea of a, a Christianity that exists outside of one hour on the Lord's Day. Right. So that, that it's meant to inform and shape every aspect of your life and to inform and shape you every day. Yeah, I mean, I think I, you can still get calendars from Concordia Publishing House, but they have been printing some kind of calendar in St. Louis with the, church, with the church's year for each day of the year on that calendar. Mm -hmm. You can go find these. You can find them in German. You can find them in English. The significance of that is not that they were quaint, as if every single person in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 
or Olathe, Kansas in 1893 was celebrating St. Thomas Day. It's that they were trying to create a culture in which that was normal for those people. Right. And we talk about this a lot. That's, that's ordering their time right around the things of God, right? That, That God's time, the church's time informs them. And that was probably new for a lot of those people. It wasn't like they came from Germany or they were born in a Lutheran community in the United States celebrating those things. It's that they were creating a new sense of culture for these people who were in these communities that had been called together by the gospel. And this is an amazing thing. Very well said, Adam. And for now, we've got to call it a day on this episode. We'll revisit the topic again soon. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Adam Kuntz. God love you and God bless. Dr. Gerberding would look me up during vacations. You Missourians lack one thing. You ought to study psychology. You ought to join the United Lutheran Church. We need you. I said the General Council left the General Synod because it was too unLutheran. Later you went back. Now place your hand upon your heart and answer as man to man. Did the General Council pull the General Synod up, or did the General Synod pull the General Council down? After a pause, he said, down. I said, the same would happen if we joined you. We would not pull you up. You would pull us down. The best thing we can do for both of us is to stay out and lay our finger on the sore spots and say, you ail here and here. Long ago, Dr. Henry Eister Jacobs wrote the Eastern Synods had been raised by the Western Synods, meaning Missouri. On invitation, I told the ULC pastors what I have against the ULC. They gave a very respectful hearing. Some said, yes, we ought to have more discipline.